Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best spendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. On today's episode, I'm happy to introduce listeners to Lisa Sherman. I'm so lucky to have Lisa as a friend and colleague, and she's also been a big part of my personal health journey. She is someone with vast understanding about hypermobility syndromes. She's going to be a frequent contributor on this podcast. I'm going to let Lisa introduce herself a bit further, and then we're going to have a conversation today about the journey to diagnosis for hypermobility, spectrum disorder, and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I'll discuss some of my own journey to diagnosis and what we know about the medical odyssey that so many people face when seeking these diagnoses. Lisa, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Libby. It's great to be here. I'm so excited for the journey that we're embarking on together and digging into all of these things that we've spent such a long time chatting about. Can't wait. So let's start with having you introduce yourself a little bit more for listeners. Yes, I grew up in Northern Ireland and my first degree was in London. I did a degree in molecular biology. And so I started off as a scientist And I worked in lab science for a while in molecular genetics and halfway through a PhD kind of got bored with that and went off and became a web designer. And after seven years of being a web designer, I had a really bad back. And so I decided that I didn't want to sit in a chair for the rest of my life. And at that time I had got into yoga as a way to treat my own back pain. And my yoga teacher's husband was a Tai Chi instructor. So I got into Tai Chi and uh, that form of movement and learned about acupuncture uh, being another part of the Taoist medical system. And so when I was thinking about what career I wanted next, I went back to acupuncture school at the University of Westminster in London and uh, qualified in 2005. I came out of that and started a practice in London. And not too long after that, I met an American man, and that American man brought me to Asheville, North Carolina. I got married to him and moved here. Uh, And during that move, I did a yoga teacher training and because I had to get my acupuncture board exams before I could practice. So I moved to Asheville as a yoga teacher, worked as a yoga teacher for a while as I was studying for my acupuncture board exams. Finally, when I got into practice in Asheville, In 2013, a lot of my patients were yogis. So that was part of the fertile soil for me, starting to notice all of these bandy people around me. I was one of those patients probably around 2013 (laughs) um, or 2014. And I remember Lisa and I were both teaching at the same studio at that time. And I was pregnant in 2013. (laughs) And I came to see you for acupuncture around my due date, right? And you helped put me into labor. Those are some of my first memories of Lisa. And then, of course, over the years, so much has transpired, especially in the context of learning about hypermobility. So tell us a bit more about 
how you started piecing together your understanding of hypermobility syndromes in the context of your clinical practice as well as your personal life? So as I was seeing a lot of yogis and people who were used to doing weird things with their body or things that other people would consider weird with their bodies, I started to notice that there was a cluster of patients that were kind of complex chronic cases. And these people would often come in, they were predominantly women, almost always women. They would come in with uh, chronic pain conditions or chronic fatigue conditions, plus, plus, plus. And the plus, plus, plus included gut issues, mental health issues, autoimmune issues, headaches, skin issues. And they would often have pages and pages of symptoms. And so the overwhelm of trying to work out what is going on with this group of people was really how I started. I'm quite tenacious. When I get something on my mind, I'll go down a lot of rabbit holes to find out what's going on. And so I noticed that Although these people weren't the same as one another, there was definitely something about this that was grouping them together. They were often yogis. They were often lovely, quirky people. Uh, They would often get into the chair in my office and kind of like pretzel themselves up, curl up in a little ball or like, you know, sprawl out in some kind of way. (laughs) And they they often were neurodiverse in some way. They were quite often non-binary in some way. And so I noticed that there were these quite individual uh, people with different things, but there was just felt like there was something that was holding them all together. So in my rabbit hole spelunking, I went down the rabbit hole of um, hypermobility because one of the things that I noticed was when they got up off the treatment table, often they would crack their fingers or their toes or their ankles or their necks. So if they'd been lying still for a while, they would need to reset their joints, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, my husband does that a lot too. (laughs) My husband, whose interest in yoga was one of the things that drew us together. He incredibly bendy for a guy who had his own complex chronic health conditions. So again, like just determined to work out what was joining all of these different things together. Chinese medicine is a lot about seeing patterns. So looking for the pattern that were common in these people. And then thinking in terms of um, systems biology, like what are the underlying threads that can tie all of these multi-system things together? So the rabbit hole of hypermobility led me to the work of Jan Gro, who's a hypermobile expert patient has a great website called Oh Twist. Oh, that's why I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. So she started out with a diagnosis of chronic fatigue and came to not understand that she was hypermobile and also had MCAS and other associated conditions. And also the work of um, Sharon McGlathery, who is a psychiatrist who has EDS and MCAS and has done a lot of um, work uh, working out the theory, the underlying genetic theory as to why these complex chronic things might come together in a trifecta. So a lot of just serendipitous hard work going down rabbit holes and then serendipitously coming across 
the work of these expert patients who had already done a lot of this thinking and pointing me towards things that then just helped me to just increasingly resolve that there's this trifecta of issues. And then talking to people like you, of course, you know, who are also interested, it just takes more than one mind to hold all of this stuff and to be able to put it together. So in our conversations and in working towards putting together our chronic pain training that we did with my husband, Will Hamilton, and you, and eventually our Yoga for Bendy People training, you know, teaching is a great way to learn. So that rather like writing your book, I expect helped me to really kind of solidify my thinking and um, started to think of the trifecta as bendy, itchy, and dizzy, the hypermobility, the MCAS histamine issues, and the dysautonomia pots. Mm-hmm. I'm remembering that along the way, we did collaborate on some yoga teacher trainings together, me, Lisa, and Lisa's husband, Will, who she was just referencing. And clinically at that time, I was really getting interested in the neuroscience of chronic pain. Uh, because I was realizing that just, you know, as a PT, I was mostly treating people with chronic pain. I was very rarely treating someone with acute injury. And uh, so I was just separately kind of studying that. And it was something that your husband, Will, was also specializing in as a psychologist, kind of chronic pain psychology, and that you were also treating clinically yourself. So the three of us got together and we collaborated on offering a chronic pain training for yoga teachers. And in the process of developing that course, I started learning more about what you and Will were learning about in terms of hypermobility and his experience with hypermobility. And I started to think, huh, you know what? (laughs) I'm actually one of these people that we're talking about. You know, it just never really occurred to me that I actually was someone who had chronic pain too. I was interested in it as a practitioner treating my patients. But I hadn't really yet turned inward and said, goodness, this actually is relevant to me personally, because, you know, you just get so used to how your body is and what you have learned to cope with and manage day in and day out that sometimes it has to kind of hit you over the head that you're dealing with a thing that we could explore and and try to understand. And yeah. Well, and I have a joke we could call the workshop. Is that normal? (laughs) Because people normalize so much of their experience, like getting up and being dizzy. Is that, isn't that normal? You know, <laughs> doesn't everybody have that experience? You know, right. Taking 10 minutes to get out of pain when you get up out of bed in the morning. Isn't that normal? Doesn't everybody experience that? So it's not until you know that it isn't normal that you then start to question, why is it happening? If not everyone has this experience, what is it about me? that means that I do. Exactly. And it was really at that time that I started to understand that a lot of my experience wasn't actually normal. And I would ask that question to you and Will. I remember specifically asking you all, describe a thing. And then I'd say, do you think that's normal? (laughs) Because I had just (laughs) never asked that before. (laughs) And so it was a really big light bulb time. And after we did the chronic pain trainings, We just continued to have these conversations about hypermobility, realizing that the hypermobility population and the chronic pain population were very much the same population. And from there, I started just to understand what are these hypermobility syndromes called? How are they diagnosed? And eventually start the journey to 
figure out if maybe that's what I had. So let's give a little bit more background on some of these hypermobility syndromes that we are discussing. So I will say that there are a lot of conditions, diagnoses, that have hypermobility as a feature. And a couple of the most common ones are called hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And for listeners who may not be as familiar, I think it could be useful to give a little bit of a brief background on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That is a group of 13 different identified subtypes that are considered to be genetic connective tissue disorders. And they, for the most part, are well understood from a genetic standpoint about what type of genetic defect is going on in the connective tissue of people who have these conditions. And most of them are quite rare or even ultra rare conditions. But there is one, the hypermobile type, type three, that is not rare at all, but it's also not well understood genetically. So we don't have a molecular marker for that one. We can't do a blood test to diagnose it. So hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is is kind of a moving target as to how the medical community has understood it, is currently understanding it. And we're still learning about how prevalent it is in the population. It is currently diagnosed by a clinical checklist of criteria that someone has to meet enough of the criteria on the list, has to check enough of the boxes in order to qualify for that diagnosis. And a broad way of thinking about what a hypermobility syndrome is, is that it's a situation where there is generalized joint hypermobility and also symptoms associated with it. And typically those symptoms show up across multiple systems of the body, could be any any system of the body. And in hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, we currently have this diagnostic checklist that was developed in 2017. It's very specific. And there are a lot of people who have symptomatic hypermobility who don't meet the criteria for that. They don't check enough of those boxes on that diagnostic list. And so those people would qualify for a different diagnosis, essentially, which is hypermobility spectrum disorder. And unfortunately, these two labels aren't always well understood. And a lot of people assume that, well, if you you don't qualify for the HEDS diagnosis, then you have a lesser thing. Your symptoms aren't as severe. And we know that's not the case. Someone who currently doesn't meet the diagnostic criteria for HEDS, but instead is given the diagnosis of HSD or hypermobility spectrum disorder, they may have symptoms that are just as severe, just as um, debilitating as someone who has EDS. I think it's important to know that these are two labels that clinically look essentially identical. And one is not lesser than the other. One one doesn't carry less weight than the other. Do you have anything to add about that? Yeah, I think you're right that it's a moving target. The definitions have evolved over time. And given that 2017 is a long time ago, it's we're probably due for another evolution. At, at the time when that International Consortium on EDS made those category distinctions in 2017. The EDS Society also suggest placing these spectrum disorders on the spectrum. 
which is kind of confusing, but makes sense as well because they wanted to put a joint hypermobility asymptomatic at one end of the spectrum, hypermobility spectrum disorders in the middle, and then defined each EDS at the other end. And that was coming from a patient advocacy group, which is really important often to include in these kinds of processes. And I think at the 2017 was very much like a doctor led consortium and didn't necessarily like fold in patients in quite the same way that we would today. And so hopefully the criteria are going to continue to be updated so that it reflects the patient experience as much as the doctor observer. There are alternative diagnostic algorithms that are used. There's a really nice one from the UK, which is part of a GP doctor's toolkit. And the acronym that they've used is Just Gape. Just Gape because it was right there in front of you the whole time and you just didn't see it. Hmm. Joints and other soft tissues being involved, gut involvement, allergies, postural symptoms, and exhaustion just gape. So hopefully a lot of these alternative patient-centered measures will kind of like fold into the next iteration of the definition and we won't get this kind of like, well, you've either got HEDS or you've got this other lesser thing. I think as we get into the problems of the diagnosis, like that's one of the key problems that there is at the moment. Yeah. I think that the official diagnostic criteria for HEDS is indeed currently under revision. I don't know when that will be revealed to us, but I think it's helpful to know when listeners, if they're finding themselves on their own medical odyssey, seeking understanding, possibly seeking a diagnosis, just to know that we're in a time collectively of a lot of learning and evolution. And I think so much more will become clear in the next X number of years, hopefully sooner than later. And I think that a lot of the really exciting research going on in the background on the genetics of hypermobility syndromes of HEDS in particular, that will just continue to help shed some light on this process so that eventually diagnostic categories are capturing the people they intend to capture. So right now they may not be fully doing that. But it doesn't mean that your experience is less valid. The diagnostic criteria that are currently being used for hypermobile EDS, you can find online and download that. It starts at the top with having to meet the criteria of having generalized joint hypermobility. And that is something that right out of the gate is a little bit problematic, how we assess for generalized joint hypermobility. So even clearing that first hurdle can be a bit of a challenge for people. Right now, the assessment that is most commonly used and appears on the diagnostic criteria checklist is your score on the Biden scale. Lisa, why don't you describe some thoughts about the use of that scale to assess generalized hypermobility? So my thoughts on that are very much informed by another brilliant Bendy researcher who's working in the UK at the University of Warwick. Her name is Sibiha Malek. And she wrote a great paper, which we can direct people to, 
which is a critique of the Biden school as a measure of generalized joint hypermobility. And she points out in that paper that it was developed as an epidemiological tool for screening large populations for generalized joint hypermobility. And then it was later adopted as a clinical tool for individual diagnostic purposes. So it wasn't designed with what it's being used for in mind. And it also, if you look at it, it disregards many of the major joints that people have that are often find to be bendy. The scoring system is predominantly upper limb joints, and it leaves out some of the limb joints that are really important that many people have hypermobility in. So it, it's not really covering all the bases of the general presentation of a bendy person. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason and others, she says that it's not really the tool for the job. Yeah, I think that's pretty common thinking out there. I think this is a quick screen, a tool that's very commonly used, but it doesn't tell us really what we're looking for. It tells us a little bit of information, but it really is very imperfect. So given that we know the Byton scale is a bit flawed or imperfect in its ability to capture generalized joint hypermobility, there is a second way that appears on the current HEDS diagnostic criteria that could confirm that a patient has met the criteria for generalized joint hypermobility, and that is through the use of the five-part questionnaire. So essentially on the diagnosis checklist, it says, hey, if this person scores, say, one point below the cutoff for their age and sex, then ask them these questions. And if they answer two of them in the affirmative, they qualify as being generally hypermobile. So there's like a backup plan if someone does mm-hmm. score low on the Biden. And I see people score low on the Biden scale all the time who clearly do have generalized hypermobility. So it is a right. common thing. So it's good to know that there's also five questions. And one of them is, can you now or could you ever put your hands flat on the floor without bending your knees? Can you now or could you ever bend your thumb to touch your forearm? As a child, did you basically do party tricks, you know, amuse your friends? As a child, did you dislocate a shoulder or kneecap more than once? And lastly, do you just consider yourself, quote, double jointed? So those Mm. are some of the ways that right now we're assessing for joint hypermobility. And that's just the very first criteria that has to be met in this much more complicated HEDS diagnosis list. There's a long list of other things. So it certainly is not enough just to demonstrate generalized joint hypermobility at all. There are all these other things that listeners can go and check out if they want to explore what those details are further. I think one of the most problematic things for diagnosis is probably in criterion three of that checklist. Uh, And it's the second part, which says exclusion of other heritable and acquired connective tissue disorders, including, and then it goes on to list some things that must be excluded before you can say that the person has EDS. And so to me, like that creates a bottleneck of testing because you can't say EDS before you've ruled out all of these other things. And people often can't get to the testing for all the other things. So they just kind of get stuck in a loop 
of not being able to get the ADS diagnosis because they can't get the exclusion of the other conditions. So it's one of the reasons that people wander lost in the wastelands of non-diagnosis for a long time is like that this is part of how they don't fit the criteria. Exactly. I think that's spot on. And it points to the problem of so many medical doctors just not being very familiar with these conditions and not feeling confident enough to make the clinical diagnosis of HEDS when someone does match it. Because one of the things that, like you mentioned, that they have to be able to do is they have to be able to rule out other conditions that might present similarly. And that's the missing link right there. Many people, as you mentioned, wander around in the wasteland of not diagnosis, if, of wondering what's going on for many, many years. We know that the average time to diagnosis is over a decade for people seeking ways of understanding what's going on with them. For me, I was diagnosed at age 43, but I started having symptoms in elementary school. <laughs> I had clear symptoms of dysautonomia when I was a kid. Then later, of course, after puberty, I started having a lot of more joint issues. I was a competitive tennis player, and I had chronically subluxated shoulders. I spent years in physical therapy, never really asking the question, why isn't the rest of my tennis team at PT with me? Why do their shoulders stay put together, but mine don't? You know, it was just sort of not really question. Is that normal? (laughs) Is that normal? Exactly. (laughs) Is it normal that my like arm bones are hanging out of the socket all the time? (laughs) And then once I got into my 20s and I had just muscle spasms like crazy all the time and mental health challenges emerged at that time as well. And I got into yoga really big time during my 20s and for better and for worse. It certainly helped me with a lot of things and then certainly exacerbated a lot of my pain and injury as well. It's part of why I wrote the book about it, Yoga for Bendy People. But it was many, many years later that I finally discovered that I might actually have hypermobile EDS. And it really came out after the birth of my two children. Uh, My youngest is six, almost seven now. And after she was born, my health really, really fell apart. I'd always had symptoms across many systems of the body, but this is when things really collapsed I had horrible pain everywhere, chronic fatigue, mental health challenges, significant POTS symptoms. Um, It was really bad. And so I said, okay, I'm going to actually go to my doctor. I'm going to go down this medical route to try to figure out what is happening with my health. I saw so many different practitioners, almost too many to count of every flavor. I mean, I definitely went down the medical doctor route, but I saw several like naturopathic doctors and just different types of practitioners. I had a sense at that time that all of these things were somehow linked together by hypermobility. And I could never convince any of those practitioners to treat the hypermobility as the unifying principle, to consider that these things might all be connected by that. Just no one had enough background knowledge to agree to do that, basically. And so we were just missing the boat and I went down a lot of rabbit holes and I spent a lot of time and a lot of money not getting anywhere. And that was all happening, of course, during the many, many months of waiting to see each medical specialist that my PCP referred me to. So I'd have a six or nine month wait to see the rheumatologist and then another wait to see the cardiologist. 
another one to see the GI doc. It just spreads out this process over years because it's so hard to get in to see these specialists. And then once you get there, I remember having such high hopes. This is going to be the person who hears my story and it makes sense to them and they're going to know something to say. And it just never happened. It just never happened. And when I look back on it, I wish I had just been wearing a camera and was like filming a documentary. I would so love to be able to share that experience with people because it was so shocking to me. I had heard so many stories of other people going through this and I I still, I didn't expect it to happen to me (laughs) for whatever reason. (laughs) I thought, no, these are going to be, they're just going to go fine. You know, they're going to know how to help me. And The feeling of waiting months and months, going through the visit and coming out with that level of disappointment and feeling misunderstood or invalidated, all those things, it's just really a crushing experience. It is a damaging experience. And it's one of the big reasons why I'm so passionate about helping people to feel seen and understood and less alone in their own process because I went through it too. And what finally happened after all those failed attempts at specialists was I went back to my PCP and it was around the time coinciding with my work with you and Will, I had downloaded the diagnostic checklist for HEDS. And I had essentially just put myself through the checklist. And when I didn't understand what something meant, I looked it up. (laughs) I learned what that test was, how to measure it, and I measured it on myself. And I took that to her and I said, look, I think that I have this because I just put myself through this checklist and I checked all the boxes that are necessary to check. Of course, except for this last one, like, could it be something else? And she said, wow, that's good sleuthing. It looks like you do have that. And I'm going to send you to the geneticist for confirmation, right? Which seems like a perfectly reasonable thing for a primary care doc to do. At that time, in our little town of Asheville, North Carolina, the geneticist took my referral and scheduled me for a visit. Of course, I had to wait about nine months to see him. And by the time I finally had my visit, he talked to me, looked at my paperwork, and he said, this is a classic case of HEDS. Of course you have this. It was like a whole different experience. He was so knowledgeable about it. I seemed so familiar to him. He just knew exactly what I was talking about. And it was life-changing to just sit there with him and have him understand my whole life, essentially, and put uh, a name to it and give me a way to understand it and to start really revising my whole experience of living in this body over these decades. And it was such a valuable experience, and I really want that for others. <laughs> I want that that level of validation for others. And what's so sad locally is that if I were going through this process now, just a few years later, he would not be able to see me. So currently, if my primary care doc wanted to refer me to a geneticist, they wouldn't take my referral locally. And it's not because they don't like bendy people anymore. <laughs> they were so inundated with referrals, they could not possibly keep up with the volume of referrals from doctors wanting them to make this diagnosis. So they had to just stop taking those referrals. 
and they sent some information to all the primary care practices in the region, basically trying to encourage primary care to take this on and to learn about it. Any physician can make this diagnosis. And that's important for people to know. It's just about finding one who's willing to learn, knows how to rule out those other conditions that may present similarly. I see a lot of people looking for which is the specialist that's going to diagnose this for me. And I often tell people, you don't need to do that. You just need your primary care doctor to be willing to learn with you and help figure this out with you. I see a workshop coming up, frankly. (laughs) Where we go and we empower GPs with the confidence to make the diagnosis. Yeah. You know, and, and like you're describing, you know, you walk into the geneticist and he's like, well, duh, you know, of course you have this, right? Yeah. And once you see the pattern, once you recognize the pattern, you can't unsee it. And I, I joke that I will have the Sharman scale, which is if the person gets up off the table at the end and cracks their knuckles, that is the one question test that confirms the diagnosis. I remember one patient actually, like we'd been through the whole um, consultation and I was getting that familiar nagging feeling in the back of my mind. And, and we stood up and I think I was like doing the square payment or whatever. And she turned around and she leant on the treatment table and she just like reversed her wrists in, you know, in a completely bendy thing. I remember thinking, oh boy, we're going to have to have this whole session again. You know, mm-hmm. have you ever heard of hypermobility? Yeah, that kind of feeling. But I think you've pointed to one of the problems, you know, people get very frustrated with doctors in having wandered in the wasteland of non-diagnosis, but we can't blame doctors for the medical system that they find themselves Mm -hmm. in. So the context of the medical system is working against doctors, working out what's going on in a complex multi-system condition because doctors are siloed into specialisms and each specialist puts the blinkers on and they just see what's going on in their particular system of the body and they don't pan back and look broadly to look for the thread. So the siloing of of medical specialty works against doctors. The shortness of medical consultations works Mm -hmm. against doctors, you know, 10 minutes to like, the person hasn't even got through their list of symptoms by the end of 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then also the, it's not a healthcare system, it's a system for delivering drugs and surgery. And if you've got conditions for which there are no real drugs and surgery, then the impetus to find a diagnostic code and to diagnose it is just different for doctors. So we can't blame doctors. And then, you know, it's a confusing picture. Doctors are confused Mm -hmm. by a confusing picture. Hypermobility in and of itself is a confusing multi-system, multi-symptom picture. And then it comes along. Bendy often comes along with itchy and dizzy, Mm -hmm. right? They come along together in this trifecta. And each one of those things is a complex chronic constellation that is surrounded by other complex chronic things. And we can't blame doctors for feeling confused, but it's the confusion that's almost the thing that tips you off, right? Right. There's the saying, if you can't connect the issues, think connective tissues. Mm-hmm. If the person is coming out with all these different things that don't really make sense, maybe one of the things you should think of is, you know, is, is it a connective tissue disorder? Because the whole body is made of connective tissues. There's nothing in the body that doesn't contain connective tissue in some way. So 
everything in the body is affected when connective tissues are are affected. So it's, there, there's nothing that's not that's not affected. Exactly. I mean, you've pointed to some significant systemic barriers to this. It's not a character flaw in an, in a physician who you know isn't familiar with this diagnosis, doesn't feel confident, or doesn't have the time to integrate this very complex picture. There's so many barriers to them being able to do that. And I don't know what the answer is, but we just do our best. For example, I recently got a new uh, primary care physician who's very interested in EDS, and she invited me to give a talk to her primary care group. We had maybe 20 physicians there, and a handful of them definitely were very interested afterwards. I see patients like this all the time. I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do with them. This is so helpful, just having some resources. Because you're right, when there's not a clear, like there's not a cure for this, you know, there's not like a go-to medication that they can prescribe right there. Now, there is a place for medical management for some of these constellations of symptoms, certainly. And those are things that doctors have to learn about too. They may not be familiar with them as well. But what I was hoping to impress upon them at that talk, one of the things was to say, hey, even if you don't have much to offer right then, to make this diagnosis might change someone's life. It is so valuable in and of itself. At least that was my experience. It isn't to everyone, but to me, it was so huge. And so for them to understand, even if that's all you can do for now, do that because you have just ended someone's wandering in the wasteland of non-diagnosis, and you have now brought them to the starting point of learning to manage this and understand this. And now you all can learn together. And over time, you can learn about what are some of the things I can do to help this patient live better. Yep. Just the validation can bring a huge sense of relief. And that sense of relief and validation is going to bring the bendy person's nervous system into much better regulation and that better regulation is going to like just feed into their sense of safety and belonging in the world. And that is going to help. That is not just placebo effect. You know, it's actually going to change their physiology for the better. Bendy people often show up to doctor appointments with a lot of anxiety because doctor appointments, you know, it's like an office and it's a it's a person in a white coat and there's a power differential. And so bendy people come to an anxiety provoking situation with bodies that are easily dysregulated because of the physiology of bendy, itchy, and dizzy. That's one of the reasons that bendy people get pammed off with psych diagnoses. Oh, you need an antidepressant, you need mental health um, treatment which may be true. You may actually need those things, but it's not just all in your head. You know, the reason for your anxiety is biopsychosocial. There are going to be biological factors that are because you're living in a bendy body with a big amygdala where the alarm bell is all, always going off. And then on top of that unsteady physiology, you're trying to like plan your psychology. And then probably because, you know, of all the things, you're living a life that you're trying to juggle a lot of doctor's appointments and confusion. Of course, the person is going to walk into that appointment feeling anxious. So whatever the doctor can do 
to put that person at their ease, it's just going to go so much better. Just having a warm rapport with someone who's like, yeah, I can see you're going through a lot. Immediately, that person's nervous system is going to settle and they're just going to be a much better historian of their symptoms. It's going to be a much more collaborative approach to diagnosis and and treatment. So much better. Yeah. Just create that rapport of collaboration. When a doctor can say, you know what? I see what you're going through. I don't have a good answer for you right now, but I'm going to learn. We're going to learn together and be a team. Such a different experience to have that happen. I would much rather have a doctor tell me, God, this is interesting. I I don't know. I'm going to need to do some research or think about this. The three magic words that the doctor does not want to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And again, we can't blame character flaws of doctors all the time. The medical system promotes the doctor being the knower to whom the patient comes in supplication to receive the knowledge. And it's really counterintuitive to doctors that they should say, I don't know. There may be doctors whose characters are less good at admitting the not knowing, but the medical system also props up the need for the doctor to be the knower. So I think there's, again, a fundamental thing where we have to make it okay for doctors to say, hey, I don't know, but I'm really going to make sure that I help you find out and I help me find out the answers. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine being a medical doctor in this landscape of the medical system. I just can't yeah. imagine it. So, I mean, it sounds like a great idea to have a doctor say, I'm so interested. I'm going to learn about this. Their plate is so <laughs> overflowing yes, already. Course. It's just such a broken system. And one of the ways it's mm-hmm. broken is for practitioner wellness, burnout, and all those things. So all those things are for part sure. of the picture here yeah. that even if someone has the intention of wanting to show up for these diagnoses, they have a lot of hoops they're going to have to jump through and a lot of barriers just in their own life to make space for that. It's really, it's not going to be easy. I think there's also, you know, the worst case scenario situation. Again, traditional medical system has fostered misogyny in the past. There's a long tradition of doctors being male and women's problems not being properly understood, researched, or taken care of by the medical Mm -hmm. system. And at the worst end of that, there is the gaslighting where, you know, if I, as the male doctor, don't know, oh, you look healthy to me, little lady, you know, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. kind of like talking down to the person and, oh, it must be in your head. You just need an antidepressant and, oh, pat, Mm -hmm. pat, off you go. And that kind Mm -hmm. of patronizing situation. I think things have started to change, but it's going to take a long time for that change to percolate up to the top of the medical tree Mm -hmm. systemically. I think the changes sort of start to happen at the bottom and then they percolate up the scale. Like the older people and the longer ago their medical education was and the more sort of fossilized they become in their ways of doing things. It takes a long time for the new stuff to kind of like feed its way up. And sometimes it just takes new clinicians to actually get into positions of power. And I think one of the silver linings, strangely, of COVID is that many doctors became patients. Mm -hmm. And many of those doctors became patients with conditions that they would previously have maybe dismissed as non-existent and all in people's heads, like long COVID, chronic fatigue, which includes aspects of, ta-da, POTS, yeah, red dysautonomia, and MCAS, mast cell activation disorder. So a lot of doctors became patients with 
MCAS and POTS. And they went through the medical system and they had the same wandering lust without a diagnosis and not being believed by doctor's experience. And they're like, wow, it's happening to me. It's happening mm-hmm. to me now. I'm understanding it on the other side. And so yeah. one of the silver linings of the COVID crisis is the patient, the doctor, expert patient doctor perspective and the way that that's going to feed into the medical system and change how these things are understood, diagnosed, researched, and treated you know, for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I actually saw a talk the other day where a guy who was an um, emergency room physician who's now become a long COVID specialist said, mm-hmm. you know, I really want to atone for all of the people who I did not believe when they told me about how they felt. So there are people out there that are willing to wow. say, hey, not just I don't know, but I made a mistake and I'm really sorry and I'm willing to put it right by learning as much as I can about it now and, and becoming, you know, an evangelist even for the cause. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about perhaps here is some of the pros and cons to diagnosis. So we've been talking about this journey to diagnosis and some of the roadblocks and barriers to that. But people have all kinds of different feelings about diagnoses. And for me, I found getting a diagnosis of HEDS to be completely liberating, life-changing, just amazing. Not everyone feels that way. So tell me about some of the things you've heard some of your patients discuss when they are considering a diagnosis here. I think my patients fall generally on the side of being pro-diagnosis and actively looking for a diagnosis. And I'm often the first person that whispers the word hypermobility in their ear and starts the whole spiel about bandy, itchy, and dizzy. And I'm not going to be the one to diagnose them, but often just you can see as this kind of swirling, disconnected pattern of confusing symptoms in all the different systems starts to coalesce into a thing that they can actually start to wrap their head around again their nervous system just drops down a notch or two because there's in all of that swirl there's so much to provoke anxiety and so my patients have almost uniformly been relieved that there is some explanation even if it is a complex one relieved to be validated and to know that someone believes that there's a thing going on with them. They're not just hypochondriacs. They're not just making it up. It's not all just in their heads. Um, And when they're given the keys to self-understanding, that puts the man into a place of being able to take empowered action. And so that's the pro. The pro side is the relief, the validation, the understanding and the ability to take action. And the other side, I think, is mostly often around being labeled, like feeling like you have a label. And that is something that some people don't like the idea of. I've seen that more discussed, you know, on on sort of Mm -hmm. forums than I have had that personal experience with people. I think more my personal experience is that a con of diagnosis is my analogy is Okay, I'm going to give you the key to this door, and that door is going to open into a treasure hoard. In that treasure hoard, there's going to be lots of gems, and in there, there's gems of understanding. You can pick up the bendy gem, and you can understand all the facets of that 
you can pick up the itchy, the, the histamine jam and understand that. But there's a dragon guarding the horde and the dragon is the dragon of overwhelm. And that each one of these jewels, like when you look it up, has, is so multifaceted, it can be very overwhelming, particularly if you then jump into a forum or a support group for someone with hypermobility and EDS, and you see people there that are at the far spectrum of functionality, which might mean you know, people in a wheelchair or with a feeding tube. And of course, the human mind being what it is, the simulator in the brain is often turned up to catastrophe mode and people suddenly think that's going to be me. Is that going to be me? So they exchange the anxiety of not knowing for the anxiety, the overwhelm of knowing. Mm -hmm. And especially again, when you try to put at least three complex chronic things together in the trifecta, I just tell people, look, you know, go in, open the door, sneak in, grab a jewel and come back shut the door behind you again and just examine that jewel until you understand it really well. And you've taken from that some actionable things that really work for you. Understanding not just what could work, but running some experiments and actually seeing what works for you. And then that gives you confidence that what is in that treasure room can make sense when you parse the information in a more simple way. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot too. And certainly have experienced that myself. And one thing that's helpful for people to know, perhaps, is that these aren't thought to be conditions that are degenerative or progressive, I guess mm -hmm. I could say, <clears throat> meaning certainly things are going to change over time in each of our bodies. But every person with a hypermobility syndrome has a unique set of symptoms and ways that those manifest. And it's hard to understand that level of spectrum it's not just a spectrum of severity, although, of course, someone might be very high functioning, not need any you know, mobility aids or anything like that, to someone whose mobility is really, really impaired by these, these conditions and everything in between. And that's the same on all of the different fronts, all the different systems of the body that may be affected by this. There's so much variety in these conditions. So it's important to look out at that world, like you're saying, in forums and chat groups and support groups, and see that there are some threads that tie all these people together, but they're all very unique experiences, and they always will be. And there's no reason to think that this is going to just be a downhill dive for the next few decades. It's not always like that. In fact, right. if we can learn some management skills, ideally, we progress in an upward way slowly over time to improved quality of life. And we can expect, of course, there are going to be ups and downs always. So that's just the reality of, of this. The other thing that I see sometimes, which I think is also so valid and related to our discussion earlier of the imperfect nature of our current diagnostic criteria, is that some people resist diagnosis because they don't want to play into this label system that isn't quite right yet, right? that hasn't quite evolved perhaps to capture the people it's intending to capture. And they don't want to be part of that. And that is a valid mm -hmm. position as well. Makes sense. It's helped me to just see the whole diagnostic landscape as a blob that is like mushy and it's moving it's like moving along. It is defined right now, but it's probably going to change and then it's going to look a little different. And I'm okay with that. And I want to be part of pushing that blob forward. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I, I think, again, 
as a bendy person, you may be more okay with fluidity on (laughs) all the levels, right? I mean, that's just part of the nature of your experience. And the labeling is a forcing of things into categories, you know, sometimes binary categories or other simplistic categories. And these are things that are multi-spectrum. And so feeling like you're being forced into a label that doesn't really fit is an uncomfortable straight jacket to be wearing for a fluid being. One other thing that I thought about was that if you force a doctor into giving you a diagnosis that they don't really understand, they may give you treatments that aren't good for you. Mm-hmm. So bendy people may end up getting spinal surgery, and you can definitely speak more to that because that's what the orthopedic doctor has for a person with the chronic back pain, you know, with disc degeneration. It's true. I mean, that may be a topic for a different day, but certainly that's another layer of challenge, which is not only as a physician, can I learn to make this diagnosis and feel confident in it? Can I then learn some ways to treat it that are appropriate, that show positive outcomes for this population? And one of the realms that is really ch- tricky is, of course, orthopedic surgeries and our healing time mm-hmm. is different. Uh, our ability to recover, our response to anesthesia. I mean, so many pieces of that surgical picture are much more complex than they would be in a non-bendy person. So they're just layer upon layer of things that need to be better understood and approached with caution from a treatment standpoint. And then there are some real dangers of non-diagnosis, which is that people can wander in that wasteland and get really lost and become depressed and in some cases, you know, suicidal. And so there's a real there's a real danger in the non-availability of good diagnosis, which leads to good treatments. Yeah. I have one more thought to explore. Okay. Is do you really need a diagnosis? <laughs> you know. do you just need to have a working hypothesis as a former Mm -hmm. scientist i used to say as a recovering scientist but will pointed out that if i was recovering i'd have to show some actual recovery behavior (laughs) and i don't so as a former scientist i like to come up with working hypotheses and test them with running experiments and getting people into that mode rather than like coming to see me and i'm gonna know the thing to do. I'm going to be the one that fixes you. No, like you and I are going to wander into this mysterious landscape and I'm going to throw out all the things that I think might be helpful to you. And then you're going to take one or two of those things and you're going to run some experiments and see if they really work for you. And if they do, then that becomes, you know, like a part of your base treatment strategy. And then we, once you've got that, underway, then we think of another experiment to run. So I think having a valid working hypothesis means that you, that there's no need for a diagnosis or that you can be getting on with managing the condition better as you work towards getting a formal diagnosis, if that's something that you want to do. Some of the things that you can do, of course, are good in any case. They're almost all the strategies that we're talking about even if you ended up not getting the diagnosis eventually of being bendy, then, you know, looking after your body with some good movement strategies, being able to regulate your nervous system, understanding what kind of nutrition 
is suitable for you and learning how to get your sleep sorted out. All of these things are going to do all human bodies good, whether they are bendy or not. So there's sort of no downside from implementing some of these strategies, especially when you're implementing them in a way that you're testing them to see whether they work for you or not. So you're not wasting any time by deploying these strategies, even if at the end of the day, you didn't get a formal diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. Working on optimal health and functioning is always in one's best interest. It's good in either case. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing this conversation with me. Um, Listeners, I will let you know that Lisa is going to be a key part of the online community that we are soon to launch called the Hypermobility Hub. So if anyone is interested in staying connected with Lisa and learning more about what she's doing, that's a great place to get connected. You can go to www.thehypermobilityhub.com. And you can sign up for our email list so that you'll get all the updates about when this new online community and resource for Bendy people launches. All right. Thanks again, Lisa. Thank you, Libby. I think we're going to be doing this again sometime. We sure will. We'll talk again soon. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. Catch you in the next episode. Bye for now. Bye.